Welcome to Manifold. My guest is Bharat Karnad. He is Emeritus Professor in National Security Studies at the Center for Policy Research in Delhi. Karnad was a member of India's first National Security Advisory Board and its Nuclear Doctrine Drafting Group. He's the author of numerous books, including Nuclear Weapons and Indian Security, The Realist Foundations of Strategy, India's Nuclear Policy, and Why India is Not a Great Power Yet. Bharat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Stu. So it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I think my audience is going to learn an incredible amount of stuff from you today. I would like you to just start out by talking a little bit about your childhood. And I, I know you're educated in the United States, so maybe you could just tell the story of your childhood and how you got to the U.S. Sure. Um, actually, I went to a boarding school, a military school here. It was called, uh, during the British times, of course, I'm post-47, so I don't know anything about it, but it was called the King George's Royal Indian Military College. And it was a feeder school to the Sandhurst Academy in England uh, for uh, would-be Indian officers to be commissioned into the Indian Army, the then British Indian Army. Um, after independence, um, this school, B school, there are five of them all over India. Uh, they, they were renamed into uh, something called King George's Schools. And then uh, they got renamed again into the place of the Belgaum Military School. This was based in Belgaum, which is in peninsular India, um, little um, east of uh, Goa, just to fix things, a uh, little southwest of Bombay. And uh, it is up in the uh, hills. It is in the, what they call the Western Ghats. It's, uh, it's a highland uh, formation up in the peninsular India. And uh, so it's a beautiful place to be in. Uh, and it helped that my hometown was just 40, 48 miles away. So the going to boarding school was made easier for me because I went to school at seven, it's been now seven years old. And that's awfully early. Uh, but then it steeled me for life as I see it uh, in some sense because uh, you learn to survive in a boarding school. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever else you learn or don't learn, that's what you learn. Um, uh, and it turns out that, uh, well, my dad was in the railways. He was a civil engineer. And then he was uh, curiously um, uh, deputed to the Atomic Energy Commission, where he was chief engineer Tarapong, the first atomic energy uh, power plant that was uh, general electric, um, you know, light water plant uh, reactor. Uh, they were set up there by uh, general electric and the construction. The main construction company was Bechtel, I think. And uh, my dad was a supervising chief engineer uh, from the Indian side, overseeing everything. And so um, my dad, therefore, had connections to the, uh, the atomic energy, the Bach uh, community, the Baba Atomic Research community in Trombe. Uh, and just to cut the story short, uh, when I came back and got into this business of uh, nuclear strategy and so on. Uh, and this happened after 1998 and the test, uh, the hydrogen bomb test, the fusion test, the so-called S1 test, which I 
immediately wrote thereafter, and uh, uh, and I wrote that I said that it was a dud, it was a fissile, and uh, that got me uh, the you know the attention of Dr. P. K. Iyengar, uh, who was a former chairman of the Indian Atomic Energy Commission, and who actually started the thermonuclear project and was the main architect of the 1974 test, etc. And he asked me my when he heard my name and he he read my piece. He said, "Why do you say that?" And I gave my uh, it wouldn't satisfy a physicist like you, but it was uh, a layman's notion uh, of uh, what may have gone wrong, and it seemed to resonate with what uh, Dr. Iyengar thought was the problem with the uh, the thermonuclear test device. Uh, and 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 so then the next thing he asked me was uh, your name. Are you related? And then he uh, mentioned my dad's name. I said, yeah, I'm his son. And so that established a connection. Uh, and then I think from there we got along famously. And I, then I got to know other colleagues of his of his that were my dad's colleagues as well in, in the Bach. Though my dad was not main Bach community, he came in from the railways. Uh, but you know there was this larger sense of community at that time. Could I just jump in for a second and clarify a couple of points for my audience? So uh, Bharat mentioned uh, Homi Baba, who is sometimes referred to as the father of the uh, Indian nuclear program, both the energy and the uh, weapons program. He was a theoretical physicist. Uh, some people in my audience will be familiar with something called Baba scattering, which we all physicists know about. Um, and uh, we are going to talk later about the early days of the uh, Indian nuclear program, the mysterious death of Baba. And the event that Bharat is mentioning, this nuclear test, which I think it's somewhat controversial whether they successfully achieved the thermonuclear step or the Ulam Teller mechanism, and still, I think, disputed somewhat today. Uh, and we, maybe that's something I would love to get into further. But uh, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to clarify a few points. Go ahead. Right. So... Um... In, um, I think around, uh, I got into my head really that I wanted to get out of the country and study outside. Uh, and I appeared for the SAT test and I got fairly good, uh, uh, you know, percentile ranking, 98, 99%, something like that. I was better at uh, the English language actually than I was <laughs> in maths and uh, so on. Uh, but it was uh, pretty good. So then I got, uh, and I, what I was looking out for was basically essentially a scholarship. Because my father just told me plain uh, in my face that I I cannot afford to send you. What I can afford to buy you is a one-way ticket if you manage the monies. I said that's fair. My mother didn't want me to go because uh, she told my dad, "Look, if you're going to let him go, you lose him." So you know, <laughs> so she was a bit paranoid about that. But um, I managed to get a reasonable scholarship, and then he bought me my one-way ticket to uh, Santa Barbara. Um, Missy Santa Barbara, and um, you know, well, it, it was my admission was in the undergraduate program in chemical and nuclear engineering. So I started out as uh, it was the first batch of nuclear and chemical engineering in the University of California system, um, undergrad, and so I was, you know, ostensibly going to be part of it. But I soon realized that I was, you know, treading water. Well, I was simply not bright enough. Uh, once I got in, uh, I somehow managed for a year and then decided, well, I had to get out. 
And I told the dean of foreign students in Santa Barbara, look, I really have to change my major. He said, go ahead, do so. And I was surprised because I thought the money given me was for chemical and nuclear engineering. He said, no, 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 look, you have all the freedom in the world. You can change as you wish. So I did change uh, to political science. And then there at the time in the, at Santa Barbara, there was something called the College of Creative Studies, which allowed you, uh, as you know, it matured later, but the concept was started, initiated around the time when I was there, 67, when I joined, 68, I think, mm -hmm. uh, something like that. And so uh, it allowed you to fashion your own major, meaning you could have uh, courses from various departments and so on. And you, you know, uh, whatever courses you, then you totaled up the units and you got your degree, essentially. Uh, so I did this, I did psychology, a bit of social anthropology and so on. It was a mixed up major. But the major, uh, major, major was political science. So I got my undergrad in political science. And then it turned out that I remember writing uh, something on deterrence or something, which caught my fancy in my senior year. And I wrote a paper. I remember getting an A or something like that for it. And I had not applied to uh, UCLA. Uh, I, and I don't know why, because Bernard Brody was there, the great Bernard Brody, uh, who was the, uh, you know, uh, the found, one of the founders of RAN, the Yale uh, Institute of National Studies and so on. Uh, and one of the great pioneers of strategic thought, uh, the author of The Absolute Weapon, etc. And uh, because I had not formally applied to UCLA, I just sent him my paper and I said, look, uh, not only do I want admission to write my dissertation under you, but I also want monies. Uh, it's a tall order. So I met him, he called me uh, and, and, and he said, fine. So he arranged something. But then, uh, you know, I got through my Schiffel the qualifier exam and so on. And then I sort of fell out with him uh, because, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, I uh, I discovered that, and one of the my seniors in the PhD program said, look, don't upset him by challenging him, you know, uh, because he doesn't take it kindly. You know, these are human frailties. I, I, I was a little too full of myself. Uh, and so, you know, I, I kept on. Uh, anyway, the thing is, our relations went south, and I, I decided, well, you know, there was that. And then I, after my qualifiers, all I had to do was write my, uh, my dissertation. The first chapter was actually just the survey of literature, etc., which I had already done. And then uh, so I then came back after actually 10 years in California. It was just too good to write. Because in those days, there was a lot of money, you know, to California, at least the foreign students were funded as was much of the UC system, with oil revenues from the California oil wells. So it was very rich at the time, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they, I benefited from it. So I, you, you, you know how it is, the graduate school, you're on the gravy train, you ride along. Uh, then uh, about 10 years later, I came back home in 76. Uh, and by then, I had got very thickly into the uh, nuclear strategy and so on. Um, and I didn't know what to do with it, because... Um, India had not yet, in 76, India had exploded the weapon in 74, but had done nothing with it. So then there was not much of a future, as it were, in that field. Uh, so I, uh, with uh, no great idea of what to do next, um, I don't know whether you heard of uh, a great literateur called Kushwan Singh. Kushwan Singh, uh, you know, he, he, is, he is said to have written 
reportedly the, the definitive history of the Sikhs, the history mm. of the Sikhs, a two-volume tome published by Princeton University Press. So obviously it has uh, it has uh, complete, you know considerable heft, intellectual heft. Anyway, he was um, you know uh, nominated or made the uh, editor of the Hindustan Times. He was one of the premier dailies in India. And he had read me somewhere, and I was in California at that time. I was, you know, sort of yo-yoing uh, between California and here, and I was in California in uh, 79. And he said, well, do you want to be my assistant editor in the same time? So I said, fine, lovely, because I had no idea what I was doing anyway. So I came back, and uh, my journalism career then was for exactly 10 years, uh, which included um, reporting on two wars, uh, the uh, very long uh, Iran-Iraq war. Uh, I went to the uh, Susangard front and so on, reporting from there. It was great fun, actually. And then at the 83, 81, 82, whatever, I may be getting the dates wrong, uh, but the Lebanon war, Israeli uh, in intervention into Lebanon. So um, uh, at that time, Indian India didn't have any good relations with Israel, so I was amongst the first, maybe also only Indian really to be there. So I accorded all the facilities, but the Israelis were very happy to escort me around and so on. And I lived uh, as a reporter uh, for the duration of my stay there, then I got tasked about two weeks or something, um, in Kiryat Shimona, which is uh, kibbutz on the border of Lebanon. And then I stood, that was the way they required it to be done, meaning that all the ports had to come back into Israel at night. You could go into Lebanon and come back. That was the arrangement. Uh, fortunately for me, I met uh, Major General Haron Yariv, who was Moshe Dayan's intelligence chief in the Sinai campaign 1956. And uh, he was there as a reservist. He had his Major General rank and it's a reserve. And I was rather taken up by him. Of course, I knew him by sight because I had read the Sinai diary, uh, the Sinai campaign diary, and seen his photographs. And I suddenly realized he was still very young looking. He didn't have uh, white hair, gray hair, anything of the kind. And uh, so we sat down and he was sort of intrigued by me. And he, he began talking. And he told me about uh, the uh, planned uh, strike, in, Indo-Israeli strike on Kahuta, the Pakistani nuclear complex. So I broke the story because essentially he just said that, look, uh, you know, we are going to do all the dirty work. And uh, Indira Gandhi pulled out at the last minute. She got cold feet. And maybe because the U.S. intelligence had alerted the, uh, the uh, Americans or the, the Pakistanis or whatever, whatever, however it happened. But Israelis were not going to be deterred because they were going in. And the, you know, the plan generally was for uh, a complement of F-16 strike aircraft with special, or, you know, specialist ordnance um, that would penetrate, deep penetration weapons and so on, uh, carrying these weapons. And then these are going to be brought into India and stationed in Udampur, which is the in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And what the Israeli aircraft would do was, you had the complement of F-16 aircraft and uh, Combat Air Patrol complement of F-15 aircraft. So they'll fly together to provide, uh, you know, uh, the F-15 top layer would provide protection for the strike aircraft going into target. 
and so on and so forth. And the idea was for them to come in over the Arabian Sea, southwards, so the Pakistani radar won't pick them up, come into a Jamnaga, which today is famous for the largest refinery in the world, uh, owned by the richest man in India, Ambani's, as you perhaps are aware. Um, and the, uh, it was also the center for our, uh, it was called the TAC-D, which is tactical development of the Indian Air Force Station. Uh, and the aircraft would come in there, uh, both the F-15 complement and the F-16 complement. So very, very quickly, just uh, very quickly to get through it, the idea was uh, the, the complement would come into Jamnagar, the pilots would, Israeli crew would rest and uh, so on and so forth, and then take off, fly over, overland into India and uh, coming to Dhampur for final, you know, uh, fueling up and uploading of the ordnance, specialist ordnance. And then you, the aircraft was to just, uh, you know, the rows of attacking aircraft would fly in, over into, uh, into Okahuta and the underground complex at Golra and, uh, you know, blow them up. Uh, and the idea was it'd be so fast coming in from the Indian side, uh, it'd give them the Pakistanis only about uh, two minutes notice, three minutes notice. So they couldn't do anything. They couldn't erect their RBA 70 millimeter guns, which was the only air defense gun available, uh, etc. Et and if you recall, the Israelis had taken out the Osirak reactor the year before. So I'm talking about 82. The planned operation was in 82. In 81, uh, under Menachem Begin, they'd taken out the uh, Osirak reactor. So these are very experienced crews coming in, and they knew what they were doing. And then this was cancelled at the last minute by Indira Gandhi. And I, the only thing I recall from uh, my meeting with Aaron Yariv, General Yariv, was he was so frustrated and upset. He said, we are doing all the damn work for you, dirty work for you. And you guys back out. And it would have aided you. It's absolutely right. And uh, it would have been a very different universe had, you know, we gone along with it and so on. So, well, that didn't work. Anyway, uh, to cut the story short, uh, in 84, I came to uh, uh, in Washington as the Washington correspondent. One Indian, one chief, one bureau, well, you know, one Indian, one chief. So I was covering America for, <laughs> for three and a half years. And I made lots of, I had great many friends in California. And curiously, um, my uh, UCLA uh, graduate project mate, it was, uh, we were working on the uh, Vladivostok talks, assault, uh, salt one talks. And what I was specifically working on, and I was in the strategic aspects of uh, my my area of research at that time was strategic, and and the the target thing was the Vladivostok talks, and the uh, the uh, problem uh, assigned me was how do you negotiate between a side that has a very big throw weight that Russia had, and very good accuracy that the uh, Americans had, terminal accuracy. Uh, and uh, so how do you negotiate? It's apples and oranges, really. And that's what, that was the real conundrum of uh, the salt one. Assuming you wanted to very much uh, reduce your strategic arsenals, the question is, how would you negotiate it? It was an interesting you know, sort of problem for me. So I did something, and I remember uh, you know, it was under the Rand uh, or something. I don't quite remember now. Uh, ages and all that. So... Uh, so then I came back to India and so on. And then something called Business India is a 
big publishing company. They offered me editorship of something called India Week, the weekly that I founded. And I ran it into the ground uh, in 17 months flat. And I really, really realized that I, the Peter Principle reached my level of incompetence as a journalist. And I wanted to get the hell out, get back to my field. And it just so happened that, uh, you know, my writings got, uh, as assistant editor and so on, in the Star Times, uh, and then my writings in my own periodical India Week. Uh, it was not W-E-E-K, -E it was W-E-A-K in my case. Uh, so, <laughs> so that bomb, uh, but fortunately for me, I got out uh, of uh, journalism and into what I consider my field. And um, thereafter, my writings had all along got the attention of many people in the establishment. Uh, people like Casey Pant, who was the former defense minister. Uh, and in fact, he was the defense minister. And he used to, you know, call me in for discussing ideas and so on. And he introduced me to his BJP counterpart, Bharatiya Janata Party counterpart, Jashwan Singh, whom I got very close to. So, um, and both of them, I should talk with them about policy alternatives, what we should do, how we should be more, uh, you know, uh, hard power oriented, uh, etc. It was really a, quite a departure from what they usually heard from most people in Delhi. Uh, and, and, and they're sort of taken up by it. Um, and, and then in 1998, when the tests happened and the NSAB was set up, the National Security Advisory Board, uh, they got me in. And uh, then we helped draft the doctrine. Just two, three of us really drafted the doctrine, even though there are 26 on the so-called drafting group, because none of them knew anything about deterrent literature. And that is my bread and butter, really. Uh, and Keshe Brahmanian, who, who was an autodidact. So he had taught himself uh, deterrence theory and so on. In, in the 50s, he had been in Hudson Institute and, uh, you know, parlayed with uh, Herman Kahn and so on. So he, he had taught himself and he was very, really very good. Um, and, and so between the, the two of us and another person, we drafted the doctrine. Uh, and uh, it was more wishy-washy than I wanted. But then, you know, he explained to me, look, um, one of the problems was that in the drafting committee, uh, it, it was in a sense preempted by the prime minister who on May 28th, in his Suomoto's statement to parliament, actually said that first of all, we are going to have a minimum deterrence. Uh, and secondly, we are going to go in for no first use as a principle. Uh, so, you know, we were, you know, our parameters are pretty much, uh, you know, defined for us. And so, Mr. Banyam, an old stalwart civil servant, explained to me, who was a neophyte in these matters, he said, look, if we write our own doctrine, which we think is right for the country, the government will merely trash it because the prime minister has already said in parliament what it needs to be. That it has to be minimum deterrence uh, by way of uh, concept and uh, whatever forces you can fit into that concept and no first use principle. And that's how the uh, draft doctrine came out. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it had uh, whatever traction it did. Uh, and the government then, uh, in its wisdom or lack of it, in 2004, uh, used it as, I don't know what, but completely went off and uh, formalized something called massive retaliation without, I think, any of these guys understanding what massive retaliation is. Uh, and of course, I 
I junk that notion, the, uh, what they call the gazetted notion of the, uh, the doctrine. Uh, but I think it, wouldn't be, it would not be wrong to say that the uh, actual operating, uh, the operational concept uh, that the Strategic Forces Command in India follows is what we, our doc, you know, original draft doctrine said which is really, um, you know, more flexible response and uh, not massive. Uh, massive doctrine or something like that is, uh, you know, basically uh, conceived by people who don't understand anything about deterrence, know nothing about deterrence literature, and merely taken to the idea of massive as a deterrent to what? Pakistan? You know, I mean, my whole idea was it, it's so silly. It, it, it sort of uh, completely uh, was... Uh, it always used to perplex me when I came back to hear Pakistan is a threat. You know, one thing Pakistan is not is a threat. My, over the 30, 40 years here, I've been saying that Pakistan is a nuisance, not a threat. And if we are unable to distinguish between a nuisance and a threat, then we have a problem. Pakistanis don't. In fact, they, we have ended up elevating them uh, in the world because we think of them as a threat. Uh, more and more, I think the government is coming down to that point of view uh, because, uh, and I, I've been saying in my books and so on, I've uh, been recommending what to do, and they've been following up. As, the, as some senior army general said the other day to me, you know, what you've been saying, you're doing now. And one of the things I mentioned was to gain Pakistani confidence, inspire confidence in them. You know, they feel paranoid, and they feel that India is out to reunify uh, and get in the old India, etc., all that nonsense. Uh, but I, I, I essentially say to them that, you know, uh, one of my recommendations has been was to demobilize a three-strike course, which is way in excess of need for the Pakistani border contingency. Three-strike course is enormous number of tanks, you know, 3,000 tanks. I mean, ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, everybody's a Roman then, you know, uh, so everybody wants to be uh, not just a Rommel, but uh, you know, who's the, who are the other great Nazi armored generals? Von Manstein, the great Von Manstein. Guderian. And, uh, Guderian. Yeah, and Guderian. You know, they, they completely miss out on what, what is, on what having scale perspective. Anyway, that's what. Uh, but now. So if I could, if I could just jump in. So for my audience, so Bharat has advocated that India focus less on Pakistan as the main threat and more on China. The strike force was really aimed at Pakistan, and he advocates reallocating those resources to something that's focused more on the, I guess, toward Tibet and China. And uh, that would inspire confidence building in the Pakistan-India relationship because then they're less threatened, immediately threatened by India, and also then would tie down a lot of PLA forces across the border in China. Is that is that a fair? Well, absolutely fair. Summary? I yeah. think the thing is also that uh, one of the things to do is, you know, um, here Pakistan, again, one of the things I think Western analysts simply uh, do not understand is the cultural aspect and the India-Pakistan thing. The cultural aspect is very, very uh, serious. It's like uh, the dilemma that the Chinese have in dealing with Taiwan, let's say. There's the ethnic Han homogeneity, you know, that identity uh, notion that, well, we are the same people. So why are you trying to be separate kind of a thing, you see? And now, this is not good for India-Pakistan. But the fact is, uh, they were one people, and there are more Muslims in India now than there are in Pakistan. 
that's a fact of life. And, and one of the reasons why India-Pakistan uh, wars have been not wars really, it is uh, in a beautiful phrase um, uh, that Stephen Cohen, who was uh, the South Asia expert, the late Stephen Cohen at Brookings and earlier at the University of Illinois, um, it is a beautiful thing when he said uh, that India, and it was told to him by a former director general, uh, director of military operations of the Indian Army, uh, Major General D.K. Punnett, who was perhaps, who is, yeah, who is dead now, but he was perhaps the finest scholar soldier the Indian Army has ever produced. And he called India-Pakistan wars communal riots with tanks. Uh, you know, it's a very apt example. And I took that very seriously and did an analysis that was published in the Roundtable in London. Uh, Roundtable, as you perhaps are aware, is the Commonwealth Journal of International Affairs. Um, and uh, it was published there. And uh, what I essentially said was precisely this, that the cultural element prevents India from uh, embarking on a war or executing a war of annihilation. It's therefore a war of maneuver. You know, you know, you don't want to decimate anything or do anything. You know, I mean, you just want to just get enough of few tanks on the other side, and similarly, they respond with doing the same thing. So it's really not serious because they go onto the battlefield and share the same wavelength for their bat battlefield tactical communication. It's completely ridiculous. It's called the Bravo Link. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. These are kinds of anomalies, but you know, it was the old original army. They kept the same wavelength for battlefield tactical communications, even when they're fighting each other. So they knew where the blows were going to come from. So they merely fainted and they you know, got away from there. And nothing ever happened. They just, you know, crisscrossed the border and just beat up on each other a few times, lost here and there. Anyway, the point to make is that these are not serious wars. So therefore, I have never considered them serious wars. Of course, when, when I talked this way and, and I had done so for 30 years, it used to originally upset the army audience, military audiences that I used to speak to. But I used to say, look, be you know, dispassionate and look at it objectively. And you realize what I'm saying is right. And I said, what's the reason? The reason is that the via India and Pakistan, whether anybody likes it or not, are connected by kith and kinship relationship, uh, relationship still. All the places of Islamic Muslim pilgrimage that Pakistanis want to go to are all in India. All the great Islamic seminaries, the Sunni Islamic seminary, the Bareilvi and the Deobandi seminaries are in India. All the great monuments, Taj Mahal, whatever, you know, the, the emperors built are in India. Pakistan was, is what was a rump element of the border. You know, it's, it's a, what they call a frontier state. Punjab always was even in the British Empire. And that's what the Pakistanis are stuck with. They have no history, they have no identity, they have no culture. For everything, they look to India. Because all the centers are here. And now in the more popular culture, your Bollywood, well, they kind of uh, uh, swing to the Bollywood tunes and dances. I mean, it's all Bollywood. It's completely Hindiized. I've been to Pakistan a great number of times. I've addressed their military audiences there. They understand what I'm saying more than our people here do. Opera, or, or at least uh, uh, they act as if, you know, they're very upset and so on. But now I think what I've been saying all along is now that the military is now taking it seriously. And now they are moving. As I said, the three strike cores that we have, 
are being demobilized in a substantive way. I said, keep one core for contingency. Sure, you can't rule out some madman in Islamabad doing some damn fool things. Okay, fine. So you have uh, that composite core for the Pakistan contingencies. But both the two-strike core, uh, manpower and whatever war material can be used from the plains to the hills into the mountains uh, to form two additional offensive mountain cores with very light tanks, not the heavy M72, uh, T-72 that are there now. It makes no sense at all. Uh, you know, up in the mountains, Sikkim Plains, uh, on the Tibetan Plateau at 14,000 feet. I mean, it's hard to start up the tanks in the morning, honestly. Uh, they use use they use bazookas to warm up the tanks in the mornings for them to just to start the damn things. So it's a bit of a farce, really. We need to rethink our entire thing. And I've been saying that. And now, fortunately, I think the government is finally on track. There's been one offensive mountain core formed, the 17 core, and I've said two more cores for the Western Front, uh, and which, by the way, is substantively being done because uh, they have already moved to the China front, the two major cores from the... But they're keeping the establishment because they don't want to give that up and they want still want Pakistanis to think that, you know, these are two actual strike corps. They are not. They are really hollow establishment, headquarters establishments, with the main fighting elements already up in the Ladakh plains, in the Ladakh sector, uh, where the uh, last hostilities, a round of hostilities took place. Uh, on the Galwan River. Um, so yes, I mean, I think we are finally getting to where China is uh, becoming, uh, is being seen as the as the premier and main threat, and perhaps the only threat, as I see it, the only threat. I've been saying that you can really literally vacate the western border of the military, nothing will happen. Keep the paramilitaries there, they, that's more than enough. Uh, so anyway, I don't think that's a little too extreme, and I don't think the Indian government will ever and military would allow uh, you know, that kind of advice to be uh, you, do, you know, realized. Uh, do you think but, that something on the India-China border, which goes beyond just a minor kind of scuffle border clash, is a real possibility in the next decade? Is, is that, well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a possibility in the sense that, you know, I mean, um, one of the problems, and I think this is the kind of Chinese diplomacy that has flummoxed a lot of parties who have dealt with them, you know, all over the place. For instance, they have uh, they formalized the McMahon line that in the northeast um, that was uh, bequeathed to us by the British uh, as the border for Myanmar, Burma. But it's the same McMahon line that they don't accept in India. Either you have to be consistent that McMahon line is a colonial construct and it's imperial design, whatever it is. Okay, fine. Then stick with it. But with Myanmar, you have said, okay, you can have the McMahon line as the border. So they've not been consistent. And they've also been, um, you know, they haven't kept the commitments they make on paper. Uh, and our emir is a bit fuddy-duddy type people who, who, who believe in uh, sticking to the letter of the uh, law, as it were. Uh, and, and then they believe in dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And that makes it problematic because... They don't look at it in a more abstract sense of what it's the message that's sought to be conveyed by the Chinese. Chinese haven't come out and said, but the fact is that the Chinese have, uh, the way they're going about it, incremental uh, annexation and occupation of Indian territory, 
on the Indian side of the line of actual control, um, is that the, you know they they conceived of something called uh, I mean they conceived of their border in 1959. It's called the 1959 line in the literature, and the 1959 line was first. You know, Propounded by Zhu and Lai, uh, Premier Zhu and Lai, and and uh, of course India said no, that doesn't uh, conform to the McMahon line uh, principle that we believe in, which is the watershed principle, uh, and then uh, etc. So that's where the dispute has lingered, except the Chinese have been clandestinely, surreptitiously moving a little at a time, uh, and because the the uh, McMahon line was drawn with a very broad pen nib. Uh, you know, you, you know, on the paper, on the map, you can see that. But actually, on the ground, it can cover a lot of distance, right? As you uh, you know, so that is a real problem. Uh, so we really, the the some of these differences are in some sense irreconcilable, simply because you are on two different negotiating principles as to what to negotiate. Anyway, can I ask? Sure. From the viewpoint from the viewpoint of a strategist in China, what do they actually stand to gain? So, we, okay, there may be some dispute over the history and how this border should be drawn, but is either side really, or particularly the Chinese side, going to make any use of territory they might gain from India? It seems like, from the Chinese perspective, they are facing a U.S. possibly a big U.S. coalition, which could include India. Why should they exacerbate? Uh, negative feelings in India toward them over territory, which to them I think is pretty useless, right? Am, am I wrong? Am I sort of misunderstanding the reality here? No, I, I'm not sure uh, whether I can speak for the Chinese and what their perspective but, is. I, when I yeah, what I meant is, if you could, if you if you could just pretend for a moment you're the Chinese strategist, why? And someone comes to your office and says, "Why don't you just settle this? You settled Vladivostok and all these borders with the Russians, the Amur River. You settled all this." And now you can have a nice relationship with the Russians. Why don't you settle all this with the Indians? And that will maybe prevent them from being overactive in the quad or something. So something along yeah. those lines. If you're the Chinese strategist, what's your response? No, I agree. Uh, that would be a reasonable thing for them to do, if only not yeah. to open up too many fronts against themselves. You know, that would be the yes. obvious things to do. You choose your enemies uh, and, and, and yes. you say, well, okay, US is a far more consequential uh, adversity to deal with than India is. Then let's settle with the lesser adversity and neutralize that front. Uh, because surely, if that front is neutralized, India would be out of it. India would have no incentive then uh, to front up with China or help the Americans do anything in this part of the world. You know, I mean, then it, uh, but so much bad blood has now uh, you know, flown down the river, as it were, that I'm not sure this works will work in Beijing because there are vested interests there. The 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 southern Tibet commander, for instance, uh, you know, the more territory he captures, the more accolades he gets, the more yes. likelihood that he is then elevated to CMC. You know what the politics is. Yes. Uh, you know, you're, so I, I, you're a I, wolf. I accept that description, and uh, but I would just say the following. First of all, if you ask a random person on the street in Beijing, or even a highly placed academic or highly placed party member, they don't really have emotional feelings about that, that border. If it shifts a few kilometers, I don't think they care. Whereas recovering Taiwan, they have deep emotional feelings about, right? So 
it seems like that's a problem that could be settled. Um, I just don't quite understand why they don't do it. Now, some people claim they do it because they want to have a little lever that they can pull every now and then that discomfits the Indian political leadership, right? So they, they can cause something to happen, which wrongfoots Modi. And, and by promising kind of not to do that, maybe they can gain leverage with the Indian leadership on some other issue. Maybe that's why they keep it an open matter. I, I'm just curious how you think about it. No, absolutely. It. In fact, that's what I've written. You know, I'm the, well, the Chinese have from the very beginning, I think, um, if you recall, uh, the Chinese impressions of India are very negative. Uh, you know, they, they've talked of India as a slave nation, which I think all of that is very well merited, if you see what I mean. You know, I mean, we have, uh, I, I remember, uh, and I quote this in my book, Nuclear Weapons in Indian Security, Polish sociologist who settled down in England and his description of India as a land of subjugations. And, you know, I mean, it fits in with, uh, I mean, I would, I would have, I have great contempt for India in the sense that we are too easily subjugated. And that is, I can entirely, completely understand why the Chinese um, had that, you know, uh, they felt humiliated when after the open door policy uh, under the Hay thing in the 19th century and so on, they felt humiliated. Um, and, and, and they have sought to, in a sense, recover from the century of humiliation. But there's no such sense of humiliation in India. And we have been, uh, you know, colonized uh, and enslaved, as it were, uh, for far longer uh, than a century. Ours was under the British Crown and the East India Company for much, much longer. So I completely understand that. Um, and I understand the same kind of feelings that the Vietnamese have, uh, of very strongly, um, you know, um, strengthening their capabilities to deter and dissuade any would-be colonizer or, uh, you know, someone who's, you know, uh, a bully, uh, like the Vietnamese perceive the Chinese, etc. So I, I, I entirely understand that uh, that notion of, um, uh, shall we say, contempt that the Chinese have uh, held uh, India in and Indian people in. And I, just to go back, Rabindranath Tagore, who was the first Indian Nobel Prize uh, winner for literature, in 1913, I think, uh, he went to China as the great uh, Asian peacemaker in, in Chiang Kai-shek's time. And he was booed uh, by uh, young Chinese at the time who called representative, who booed him as a representative of a slave nation and so on. So that the, the, the common Chinese, the popular Chinese perception of India is very, very, uh, it's, it's very, Shall we say it's very stable in the sense that this has always been how they looked at India, a large country which doesn't make sense for them. How was it so easily captured? How was it so easily dominated? You know what I mean? So they can't yeah. make head or tail of it. Um, and yet, I think um, one of the things that uh, uh, Mao was warned about when he start he sort of embarked on the sixty-two war was he was reminded that this is a great. Indian army that defeated the Nazis and, uh, you know, the Southeast Asia Command uh, that defeated the Imperial Japanese land forces, that defeated the Africa Corps uh, under Rommel in North Africa, etc. And by the way, most of the hard fighting was done by the Indian divisions, the 4th Indian Division, the 8th Indian Division, etc. in the Desert War and the 14th Army under William Slib uh, in Burma. So you have a tremendous fighting thing, and this was a little after Second World War, 
So the, the Mao was born. Look, this is the great Indian army. Except the great Indian army was nothing on the China front uh, because there was no Indian army to, you know, they're all in canvas shoes at the heights. Not kind of thing. So because Nehru from the very beginning had this notion of uh, uh, Sino-Indian autant uh, to, uh, to guide a Asia, etc. It's the same old Rabindranath Tagore notion uh, and others have um, sort of uh, flogged this for a long time. Um, it has made no impression on Chinese because I think they really think of us below their level and that you can't deal with India as an equal simply because it is not. So, the, as you know, the Chinese notion of hierarchy is very, very uh, stiff. Um, and, and, and so um, they see themselves as peer competitors and rivals to America, which is what they think they're stationed in uh, international uh, affairs is. And they don't want to deal with India uh, on an equal basis. So, you know, they, they would rather that India accept what China tells them, uh, what China tells it to do. If they did, then in, we, we'd have peace. But this is exactly where I think they have sort of misjudged India now. Because I'm a generation younger than you, so uh, I've got to say something a little more optimistic about sure. India-China relations. I would say most Chinese, uh, obviously most Chinese in China don't know that much about India, but most of them actually have a lot of respect because there are so many talented Indians out in the world. It's hard to ignore. And and it's another ancient civilization where Buddhism came from, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. Actually, I think they have a lot of respect and some kind of, you know, you, I, I think the, the, the South Asian and East Asian cultures are, are not one. They're quite different. But there is some kind of pan-Asian instinctive solidarity there still, which could be drawn on. I think the main question is just they see themselves uh, ahead of the Indians in terms of development because they, they managed to develop very fast. Maybe the two countries were equal in development in 1960 and then the Chinese got ahead. So now there is some level of contempt probably because they're thinking, why didn't these guys, you know, they have democracy, but why couldn't they get organized like us and get ahead? So I think that's certainly there. But I, I think at the level of strategic relations, it, I just, I find it strange that they wouldn't settle this so that they can have an amicable relationship as, as they have with the Russians. You know, many people thought they were never going to have an amicable relationship with the Russians because of the border disputes and uh, all kinds of unequal treaties and things like this, much much worse actually than anything between China and India, right? And yet, yet now they seem to have a very warm relationship. And uh, anyway, so I, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I'd, I'd like to think something like that is possible in the future. No, I think. Look, uh, just so you know about, I mean, the, you mentioned China and Russia. In the latest map they have issued, they have again incorporated the Usuri territory within China, and I've said the Russians right now about. Uh, a month ago. Yeah. So it's, it's an ongoing problem. It, in some sense, the revanchist China that everybody apprehends is what every, and that's, you know, in a sense, uh, spawning a lot of anxieties everywhere. Whether it's the Nine Dash Line, whether it is uh, North Vietnam, where they have, of course, agreed on a border, but they keep, you know, trying to uh, uh, arm twist the Vietnamese. Then there's Taiwan, there's Senkaku in the East Sea, then there's the McMahon Line, the line of actual control versus India, there's the Usudri River border with uh, Russia, and they seem not to give up. It's one thing to say, well, okay, at Xi Jinping's level, 
that they'll, you know. And by the way, in the cultural thing, you're absolutely right. Uh, what I meant by way of contemporary was in the political realm, uh, as, as, as an enslaved nation. They, I, I've been, I mean, uh, it's curiously, I was invited to be a, a foreign fellow, visiting fellow, whatever they call them, at the Shanghai Institute of National Studies. And they wanted me to be there for a longer time. And I was just there for six weeks. I said no. Uh, and um, so I traveled a lot in China at the time and uh, talked to people who could speak English. You know, I mean, unfortunately, I can't speak Mandarin quite um, a great. But um, the culture, the respect for culture is absolutely there. I mean, the legends of the Monkey King is very much like the Hanuman from Ramayana. And I'm sure it was taken from Ramayana into by the Buddhists and however that thing went. And the travels westward toward by the Monkey King and his entourage uh, to the West, Western Kingdom was India, basically. And so all that is very much there in their minds. And, and, and they're not, so I'm not downplaying that. I'm merely saying by way of the political reality in modern times, why India has been politically subjugated, not culturally subjugated. Yeah. I mean, despite everything, it has retained its uh, you know, basic cultural ethos yeah. and I, I do want to agree with you that PRC is capable of incredible great power autism pissing off all of its neighbors, right? They're fully capable of that. So you shouldn't think of them as 10 feet tall in terms of diplomatic terms either. They can, they can create without, you know, without knowing it, a huge alliance against themselves by just acting like. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. I think, jerks, uh, right? yeah, um, but, you know, you mentioned, uh, the strategic discomforting of India, which is an ongoing thing. And they're very good at it. Let's put it this way. I, I have said in my writings that if you, and I've said that if India cannot summon the kind of strategic mind and, uh, that the Chinese can, just emulate them. Don't think. Just emulate the Chinese. Uh, and I've said that one of the, one way to, and I, I suppose this is bloody-minded, but, uh, you know, the Chinese went ahead and nuclear missile armed Pakistan in a very deliberate way to contain India to the subcontinent. And I've said that one of the ways to do is to respond. I said that to the National Security Advisory Board. Let's do it. Now we are doing it. We're passing on Brahmos and these kind of cruise missiles, so, you know, supersonic cruise missiles to the island territory, Southeast Asia and so on. And, uh, but I said then, then, by way of priority, send it to Vietnam. Because Vietnam is one country that the Chinese respect a whole lot because they got bloodied. The nose bloodied when they ventured into Vietnam in 79, if you recall. Uh, and so uh, they respect them. And so uh, I said, one way to gain China's respect, you are not going to do it through negotiation. Somewhere there has to be some actual thing on ground. And we have always shied away from it. I remember the foreign secretary at the time when he came before the board and I asked him, have you not thought about, you know, reciprocating Chinese actions by nuclear missile arming uh, countries on China's periphery? And he tells me, and I was very upset with that, and I jumped on him. Uh, he said, no, it's not practicable, Mr. Karnad. I said, practicable? Mm -hmm. I, I lost my pool, you know. <laughs> so, you know. So as far as mature then, I'm not particularly mature now, but as far as mature then, I jumped on him. But the point to make is, how else do you, in some sense, gain China's respect? Or get their attention? That these guys mean business. That we mean to need to do, need to have some kind of a, 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 you know, a solution for the disputed border. 
let's do it. Um, but something has to happen. And I've been saying that one way to trigger that is this. Nuclear missile arm, and I mean nuclear, and everybody starts jumping up and down because there are more peaceniks in Delhi than anywhere in the world, including the Arms Control Association of uh, Washington, D.C. But the point is, I think, <laughs> but, you know, the, the point I think is that we need to do something is what I always believed. To, in a sense, catch them by the scruff of the necks and say, look, okay, you want to play dirty, we'll play dirty with you and we'll merely reciprocate what you have done. And I've called for the tit-for-tat policy. Uh, and, and, you know, um, but again, the Indian government is a little cautious, a little too cautious in my view, a little too uh, hesitant uh, in dealing with China on terms that the Chinese understand it as I see. So this is where matters stand, but we are now uh, selling, we have sold the first uh, tranche of Brahmos missiles to Philippines. Uh, we may be giving something, maybe may giving something, and we are given other missiles to Vietnam and other countries are in line, Indonesia, etc. So they'll get it. But we are 30 years too late. And, and there's opportunity cost to it. And the opportunity cost is in terms of not having a border solution. Yeah. You know, a, a boundary that both of us can mutually accept. And this, this is where matters stand. Because there's always a cost to not doing things on time. So speaking of weapon systems, I think we can now discuss this thing that you mentioned right at the beginning about the thermonuclear step for the Indian strategic forces. Um, they haven't made it, right? So the arsenal in uh, India is based on sort of 20 kiloton fission bombs, right? Not warheads, not uh, fully thermonuclear warheads. Do you think that's an important step that India needs to actually take to be a credible deterrent? Or the alternative argument is, well, if you have a couple hundred missiles, Agni-5 missiles or whatever they are, and you can hit population centers in China with 20 kiloton bombs, it's still a pretty strong deterrent. So where, yeah. where, do, you, where do you come out on this? But that's, uh, that's precisely the argument uh, you hear in official circles, including in Trombe, the Trombe circle. Again, they are not into strategy, and I tell them, please don't talk about strategy. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, stick with your what you know about science and engineering weapons. Uh, but the point I think is that, uh, you know, the, um, the Trompe contention is, and this is something that has been pushed by the former chairman, Archie Dambram, who I think is, uh, I think very badly of him. He, he's really been the bane of uh, the country's nuclear program, uh, as I see it. He's a chap who has been an absolute disaster. And he still rules the roost because he holds a Baba chair in Trombe. He's 90 year old, senile, uh, but you know, he's just mucking up things for everybody. Anyway, the point is, his thing is that whatever the, whatever went wrong, uh, with the S1 device on May 13th, uh, 1998, it can be corrected by computation in a computational rejigging, you know, through computers and separate comp component testing, etc. And I keep saying, how does it work? I mean, the thermonuclear, according to Richard Garvin, has some 2,000 parts. 2,000 things have to go right for a thermonuclear explosion to work. Whether the radiation channel, I mean, that's a problem in itself. You don't know what went wrong. So, and then you com compounded your problem by triggering a number of devices at the same time, simultaneous triggering. 
So how do you then distinguish and discriminate the test results? You know, it's a massive yeah. problem you created for yourself. And, and of course, credibility problems. Uh, for the Chinese, they are quite happy, you know, because you don't, they know for certain that you cannot be certain, Indians cannot be certain that the thermonuclear they boast of will actually blow when it's required to. And the fact of the matter is that unless you test again, which is why I've been advocating from 1998 onwards after the test, we need to test again, which, by the way, was the advice given by the director of field testing at the Pokhran test site. Because so he saw that it didn't work. He advised the government, you know, we have to test again. Uh, but the government so far, and then we signed the nuclear deal that is conditioned on India not renewing tests. You know, I mean, we, we in a sense, hinder ourselves this way. Uh, but I suppose if we make up our mind to test, we'll test it. Go ahead and test it. The thermonuclear, and this time I said, if you're going to test, let it be open-ended. And no nonsense about it. Go megaton thermonuclear because you have to get, uh, you cannot talk about tailored yield and all that nonsense. Tailored yield is after you have really had great experience with single uh, single yield devices which have attained their planned yield, etc. Um, you know, don't start, you know, we start jumping at the edge kind of technologies without going through the process. Wow. You know, every other country has had huge data from large number of tests. And India has had just six tests altogether. Altogether. Seven so, tests. Maybe. Six tests. Five tests and one. Yeah, 74 tests. So, you know, six so, tests. So going back, going back to your expertise in the theory of deterrence. So, you know, for a long time, China tried to main or claimed it was maintaining a just a minimal deterrent against the United States. And it could have been as few as maybe 20 megaton sized uh, deliverable warheads. Uh, but now, of course, they, they've shifted completely to this notion that, well, I think maybe just to manage the psychological attitude of the Americans, they have to have a much bigger force, even though probably destroying 20 major cities or I guess they had MERV, they, they have MERV weapons. So destroying 50 major U.S. cities would be enough of a deterrent and they don't need to do this. But I, I think it's based on a psychological judgment of the American attitudes. It says like, oh, we just have to have more. Now we're building fields of hundreds of silos um, just to increase our deterrent uh, capability. Is that your attitude for India, that in actual terms, these 20 kiloton warheads are su really actually sufficient to destroy the economy of China like, and kill you know, hundreds of millions of people? But for just purely psychological reasons, you have to have a bigger stick. Is, is that the right analysis? Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. In fact, I've used it precisely. The reason why one of my, uh, one of my basic tenets of my advocacy is precisely this, that Unless you can match China's 3.3 megaton standard issue weapon warhead on their uh, Dongfang uh, 3s, 4s, and 5s, etc., and the 21s, 21 might be 500 kiloton, but the Dongfang 3, 4s are 3.3 megaton warheads. Now, I said, unless you reach at least a megaton level, you won't have the psychological parity. And it makes all the difference because deterrence is, I've argued as is the fact, it's a mind game. But if you're going to play mind games, uh, if you have 3.3 uh, incoming over Delhi, uh, do you think any Indian uh, politician who are very uh, nervous Nellies, really, from my experience with them, uh, you know, would any, any of them risk anything? If you have nothing of the kind, you have a 20 kiloton, I called it a firecracker, a 20 kiloton firecracker against a 3.3 megaton uh, incoming. 
So, I mean, it's a real psychological problem. And it's a deterrence problem at the heart of it. Because ultimately, if the Chinese want to overhaul you and want to, you know, they do nothing more than just take out their uh, Dangfeng threes or fours, roll them out of their mountain, uh, you know, tunnels Silos. and let our satellites pick it up in a crisis. And what is India going to do? I mean, oh, yeah, we're going to, uh, you know, send our Agni 5 with a 20 kiloton uh, surefire firecracker into Shanghai. I mean, okay, it might work in normal times. But, you know, if you have psychological, yeah, you're dealing, I've always said, you have to deal with the Indian leadership, the psychological makeup of, an, of the Indian leadership, which is very, very timid. It is, timidity is the hallmark, um, I've always argued. And this really makes it problematic. And it's a real problem. It's not an abstract problem. This problem of deterrence from the Indian side is real because we are easily spooked in any crisis. Nuclear, non-nuclear, military, any crisis. And what happened in the Bombay seaborne attack? And everybody, you know, everybody's running around like headless chickens in Mumbai. Everybody. And the shock of special forces is that, I mean, a whole bunch of people just did not know a thing of what they do, honestly. And you were expecting that, and that's why I oppose the no first use principle. I've been opposing it ever since. I said, we can't take the first monsoon strike, for God's sake. You know, I mean, our cities are flooded. And you think we can take the first nuclear strike? Really? I mean, how foolish or silly is it? And... Yeah, but people understand what I'm saying. But they say, well, okay, some government has to make up a mind. You know, some prime minister has to say, okay, fine, we'll go first use. It's what I recommended in my last book, 2018 book. It's called Staggering Forward. Yes. There is a movie in India's global ambition, which I've argued that one way, okay, if you're not going to get a solution, a negotiated settlement with China, then let's at least then play it hard and forward deploy our nuclear uh, weapons as a tripwire. Use atomic demolition munitions, which is what I said in my uh, nuclear weapons engine security book uh, earlier. Use the ADM, the atomic demolition munitions, as a tripwire. It's a passive defensive measure. You're not actively going out there threatening the Chinese PLA encampments or anything alive of that kind. You're merely placing these things. You don't have to, just naturally, you won't disclose where they are put, but you, you know the valleys through which the PLA may ingress, might ingress. And then you place them there and tell the Chinese, look, if you come in through the, you know, if you come in to, you know, break through the LAC, fine, you risk a tripwire. You're already in place there. It's your call. You want to be offensive about it? Go ahead. Because we are not being offensive. We are being defensive. We are mainly placed at ADMs. And then we are going to place our Agni 7s, uh, Agni 1s with a 700 kilometer and that can cover most of the missile replacements in in the Tibetan plateau, etc., whatever targets you want to hit, etc., and uh, leave it to the Chinese to take the risk, but at least generate some risk for the Chinese. But right now, it's risk-free, it's cost-free to the Chinese, even in the abstract sense of things escalating. Well, you have nothing. I said because you cannot match the uh, infrastructure build-up, because you do not have conventional parity, because you don't have so many other things, communication, so on and so forth. Then up the ante and get down to forward deploying the nuclear weapons. You might think that, uh, you know, uh, very provocative. It's not. It's a normal, reasonable deterrence posture to assume 
when you are placed in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite reasonable that if you're facing conventional overmatch, uh, that you know you might reserve use of nuclear weapons to defend yourself uh, in an existential scenario where the conventional overmatch is leading to you know uh, existential risk for your your polity. Um, I would think the other side would just assume that that's a risk, even if you have a quote no first use policy. Right? So, um, you know, who's going to abide by that if you're getting overrun? Like maybe you'll actually use your nukes, right? right? Absolutely, so, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So let me uh, let me uh, since we're talking about nuclear weapons, maybe we can go back to Baba a little bit. Uh, so, homie Baba died in 1966. Is that right? Yes, February 66. He was so he was. An incredible figure. I, I actually want to say this to all the physicists out there. You just know this formula for Baba scattering, but but uh, go look into this guy. This guy had tremendous uh, patriotism. He was a visionary. He wanted to he wanted India to master the three different fuel cycles and even build thorium reactors. I mean, the guy was incredible, and he set up. He was very instrumental in building up fundamental science in India, establishing institutes and such. Um, he died mysteriously. His flight uh, over Mont Blanc uh, blew up and I guess crashed. And I, I don't know what the final story is, but I know at least some people, perhaps my guest today, <laughs> believe that this was not an accident, that actually he may have been killed by the CIA who were uncomfortable with the India nuclear weapons program at the time. Well, absolutely. I think the CIA, um, look, India benefited a lot uh, in trying in in getting the knowledge really uh, with the atoms for peace literature that was uh, declassified uh, by the U.S. government, as you recall, uh, and so we had stores of it brought home from wherever Vienna and so on, i.e., and, and people gained from it. Um, Baba, from the very first day, he was the director of TIFR, Tata Institute of Fundamental Research which was the seedbed for the Indian Atomic Energy Program, as you may be aware. Uh, and the first batch of uh, incoming uh, scientists in the TIFR batch uh, was P.K. Iyengar. And P.K. Iyengar, Dr. Iyengar told me that, uh, look, we were told from day one when Baba came in and said, look, we are going to proceed parallelly on what in effect was bomb track and the civilian nuclear reactor track. You know, civilian uses and military uses uh, would, would proceed parallelly. And that there would be no distinction. And in real sense, I think Nehru also uh, pretty much signaled it. In Parliament, he talked about a nuclear program being Janus-faced. I mean, how more revealing can you be? Yeah, it's rather obvious, yeah. right? So, yeah. Right. The Greek god with two faces looking in opposite directions. He called it Janus-faced. And he was very clear about it, what he intended, uh, intended the Indian uh, government to do vis-a-vis -vis the atom, uh, the civilian atom and the military atom. The, the remarkable thing about Nehru, and here I, I think Nehru is, I, I, was, I started out as a bit of a skeptic, uh, calling, think of Nehru as woolly-headed and so on. He was in various respects vis-a-vis -vis China and he completely misjudged everything. Uh, he, he rejected the uh, United Nations Security Council seat the Chiang Kai-shek's, uh, you know, Taiwan vacated for Russia, visit, vacated. Uh, that was offered to us by both Russia and uh, John Foster Dulles, Ike's administration to India. 
And we said, no, no, China deserves it better. I mean, it's the level of self-abnegation that is hurtful. You know? Yeah, they still haven't recovered from that. They still, they deserve a seat, but <laughs> they, they still end up with yes. Yeah, China is now in a position to block India's entry forever. Anyway, so we have been a little too uh, boy scoutish about it. Uh, and and, and, and Baba was very clear. His 1955 three-stage plan that you were referring to, the uh, first brace of uh, natural uranium fuel reactors uh, producing the feedstock for the breeder reactor, which in turn provides the feedstock for the thorium reactor. And that was based entirely on the last stage uh, raw material, thorium, and India has the largest reserves of thorium in the world. That's the basis, and it's out there. You don't need much by way of, you know, mining it and so on. You may have to refine it. We simply, you know, the sands, uh, the monazite sands on the Kerala coast. You just coromandel, you just lift it up, there's thorium. Uh, it's, nature has blessed us, so, and that was the basic point that Baba started out with. And he worked backwards to say, well, okay, <clears throat> what do we do? The marvelous thing is between Baba and Nehru, uh, and you might think this a little uh, covert and they had their own little thing going, but how do you, um, uh, you know, ch uh, as you perhaps are aware, Baba was the first chair of the Atoms for Peace Conference in Geneva in 1955. But even as he was the chair uh, in Atoms for Peace and all that, and you're talking about this, uh, you know, uh, thing about how uh, the future of the world is going to be hugely benefited by peaceful atom and so on. Uh, he was talking to Nehru about getting the NRX reactor from Canada, which became the Kandu reactor, which fueled the nuclear weapons program. And he told Nehru that. Uh, this was a cipher correspondence in secret going on between Baba and Geneva, who was signing the, uh, you know, uh, who was booking the deal for the Canadian NRX with this in mind, weapons in mind, it is an extraordinary thing. And the great thing is Nehru put up this beautiful strategy of misleading the West into thinking, oh, we are for peace and Indians, oh, well, they are all for peace and disarmament. And India's disarmament campaign in the world was a beautiful, beautifully done uh, operation because it, 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 in a sense, covered up for what we were actually doing in terms of trying to get to a stage where we could uh, make bombs and uh, weapons. And we reached a threshold with the plutonium reprocessing plant going on uh, stream in February, March of 1964. Nehru dies in 1964. Uh, the Chinese test in October, on October 16, 1964. Everything is happening in 64. In 62, when the Chinese humiliated Indian army in the Himalayas, Baba went to Nehru and said, let me explode a, a you know, a conducted test. They'll raise our spirits of a beaten people and so on. And Nehru always, one of the things about great people are, they always have frailties. Um, and Nehru's case is that he was called the Hamlet of Indian politics. You know, <laughs> very indecisive at the wrong times. And his constant thing to Baba was, be ready, but not now, not now, not now. And he died saying not now. And then the trouble with the in the nuclear weapons program was it was so secret and it was so shielded uh, structurally, bureaucratically, and so on. By the way, it's the only department of government that writes its own checks, by the way. Only department of the government. 
there's no financial advisors. Finance yes. ministry doesn't have a say. They just, the secretary of the Department of Atomic Energy writes his check. This year we want X number of, uh, you know, rupees. And there's no, no finagling with the finance ministry. The finance ministry just has to say, okay, that's fine. And that's the reason why this thing was set up. It's a two-man loop. The, the, the Secretary of Department of Atomic Energy and Director of BAC, uh, which were co-terminal. Baba was everything and everything. She was Secretary of Government, Department of Atomic Energy, Director of the Trombe Establishment, uh, etc. And the Chief Advisor to the Prime Minister on Nuclear Matter, Atomic Matters. And he uh, prevailed on her to be also the Minister of Atomic Energy. So you see the two-man loop. There's no bureaucrats involved. No, and by the way, it's the only paperless ministry in the world. There is no paper. Nothing is put down on paper. Even now, the prime ministerial decision is given, you know, by word of mouth. Yeah, he tells you, okay, you do it. There's nothing on paper. But even then, Baba and Nehru were aware that you know various Western agencies would be interested, various people would be interested. So no paper trail. And because Indian system otherwise is very well known for everything and for duplicate, we generate yes. paper by cutting down forests like mad. You know, every little thing is. So, you know, he said no. So financial sovereignty, autonomy for the department, absolute secrecy. No bureaucrat knew about it. The downside was there were no stakeholders in the bureaucracy after it died. They both died. So Baba was central and he was taken away by these nefarious means. And then uh, Nehru died, and the two people who were in charge of the entire program were gone. And Lal Bahadur Shastri, who stepped in, didn't know a thing about anything. Not, nor did any of the civil service bureaucracy. It's incredible how they kept the secrets, even from the CIA. Because one of the things that the CIA later said, well, well we, you know, well, we can track the damn things, and they have the capability. And Nehru was up front. He asked... Major General Nichols, if you recall, Major General Nichols was the manager of the Trinity explosion in New Mexico. And he passed through Delhi. He was trying to peddle some reactors of his own. Uh, so Nehru asked him, called him into his office and asked Baba in his well. I recall, I, I, I sort of detailed that meeting in the book. And he said, uh, well, do you think he, Baba can do it? Meaning build a bomb. And uh, Nichols said, yes, from what I've seen in Trombe, yes. Yes. And he said, this was 62, 63, mind. So, you know, we have missed the boat. And we said, so, you know, and it has hurt us hugely. So can I ask you about that history? So Nero dies in 64. Baba is still in place. and Still in place. But again, had no traction because nobody then in government knew anything about it. First, they had to verify what Baba was saying. Well, there was, again, no paper. Right. It was just so, Baba saying that Nehru had authorized me. And here, nothing is so, shall we say, suspect as anything with no paper trail, you know, in the Indian system. Because there was no so paper if, trail. Very difficult. If Nehru is gone and Baba is having some trouble now because the special relationship is not in place anymore, why would the CIA kill him in 66? What's the, what's the, why, why, why then? Why not earlier? Because Baba was still proceeding with the idea that we should have uh, something ready. So the reprocessing unit was, you know, uh, shall we say, revving up. Yep. Uh, and that is a very uh, iffy thing, uh, the reprocessing. 
uh, and then we got it. We got a little bit, a uh, little amount, and we uh, the amount needed for an actual explosion. We didn't reach it until about uh, 1970. I see. Have, so there were still uh, critical. There were still critical things in, in See, ongoing. But that had to be done under the government's, uh, under the government's, uh, with, without the government coming to know it. This is Baba's own agenda. Because he thought he had uh, the thing going with Nehru, and that was his brief. And so the Central Intelligence Agency, I think, knew of it. And then this guy, Crowley, uh, was uh, Robert Crowley, who's, who became the head of clandestine ops in the CIA. Uh, you know, and then, uh, and he had some very um, racially abusive things to say about Baba and so on. If you look at the conversations, uh, it's not very nice. Um, so, you know, uh, so he, you know, and so Baba was targeted because everybody knew that he was the man. He, he was the linchpin. You take out the linchpin and the whole thing collapses, which happened, really. So just for my audience, this guy, Robert Crowley, who was a high-level CIA operative, uh, I guess on his deathbed or when he was dying, gave a set of interviews. And in those, I think uh, it's something like Interview with the Crow. His nickname was The Crow. That's right. Conversations and with the Crow. Conversations That's with right. the Crow. And you can find this book. And Crowley basically says that they killed Baba and by putting a bomb uh, on his plane in the luggage compartment. People are, I think, divided on whether Crowley is a reliable source. What I'm curious about is, you know, if if the leader of the Chinese bomb program or the Iranian bomb program were assassinated or killed, died mysteriously, the internal security services of that country would eventually come to an opinion about, well, what, what happened here? Was this actually just an accident or is there some foreign power that's knocking off our top scientists? I'm just curious, if it, among people who would know in that generation, do you know what their opinions are about what happened? No, as I uh, sort of mentioned to you in my message, um, Yes, I think the Trombe people knew right away. Right away meaning uh, they suspected and then the way it happened uh, after they got uh, the technical details about the flight path and so on and so forth, they were very certain what happened. Uh, I see. Uh, you know, they were on a, the plane was on the glide path to Geneva Airport and so on. And Mount Blanc, it sort of uh, veered off and you can see if the uh, cargo hold blows up, how the thing, and they sort of, in those times, may have simulated it, I don't know. But they were very certain because everybody that I talked to, the old stalwarts were not there anymore. Your father's out. friends. Yeah. I'm sorry? Your father's friends, maybe. Yes, my father's friends. And who were the first batch of Baba students coming into, scientists coming into the uh, nuclear establishment in 1947. Um, and by the way, our Indian Atomic Energy uh, Agency Indian Atomic Energy Commission predated the American uh, <laughs> Energy Commission by several yeah. years. That October, when the Chinese set off the explosion, Trombley arranged for a plane to the Air India flight, actually, that used to go to Hong Kong, to fly as near the Chinese border as they could uh, to see if something could be picked up. And they swapped the aircraft after it came back. And they knew that the Chinese had uh, an implosion trigger. So they, they detected all that uh, before it ever came out. So by, you know, within a week of the Chinese explosion, uh, uh, October 16, 64, the Trump establishment had come to know that this was what they'd used. They'd used an implosion trigger, that this was the yield, et cetera, et cetera. 
they got the basic stone. And that was my reason for saying that Baba proceeded with, uh, you know, even after Nehru's death, uh, by continuing to do what he was doing uh, on the weapons front was because of this. They had the Chinese thing, he had, uh, you know, arranged for all the data to come in and have it analyzed in by his scientists. And they came to a conclusion, yes, the Chinese have this, and then we should have it too. And we'll, prepare, we'll proceed on the basis that we're going to have it. So, you know, and so that was the basis on which they proceeded. I was going to say that I thought if somebody blew Baba up, the Chinese probably had more motivation than the CIA, right? <laughs> no, actually, no. Because if you recall, uh, the, Chinese, the CIA tried blowing up Zhou Enlai. You don't know that? Is that right? No, I, I didn't know no. that. Oh, yeah. At the Bandung conference, the Indian, uh, you know, Nehru in his uh, Chini, Chini, Hindi, Bhai, Bhai days, India, China, our brothers. Uh, yes, the, yes. He, uh, he sent an Air India plane called the Kashmir Princess to pick up Zhu and Lai. Uh, and, and that was blown up over Sulusi or someplace like that. You know, I incredible. Guess I, I guess I had heard the story. Yes, Zhu and Lai took a different plane, right? Is took that a different plane. So he got to know of it and <laughs> let the plane go. And that plane blew up again. It's the same kind of mine in the cargo hold, you know, the time wow. explosion. So, Incredible. You know, this is something that they tried. They've done it. The CIA has done it. I mean, you know, and the Kashmir princess blew up. So, you know, in Air India, and, and we have been very, very tolerant, shall I say, of the American actions. And they've done it all along. You know, uh, I, uh, as well. I, I have written a couple papers with in, uh, Iranian physicists. And uh, there have been assassinations over the last oh, yeah. 10, 20 years oh, yeah. going on there. And sometimes, strangely, like a guy who's very theoretical, like a string theorist gets blown up. And I asked my colleagues, I said, was this guy secretly doing some defense work in his spare time? They said, no, this guy was very pure. He was doing just mathematical yeah. physics. And I think they're just blowing these guys up to scare us. Like sometimes they're not even blowing up the right people, but just to scare everybody. So... Uh, yeah, this this might be more the Israeli Mossad at work. Oh, this is this is I'm sure it's Israel, not well. Yeah, I don't. Is, I'm not sure about anything, but it's probably yeah. Israel. Yeah. No, basically Mossad. I think Netanyahu yeah. always virtually admitted that. And I think I've been to Israel many times, and you know, I there's with them. I think yeah. I mean, they said, look, we can't take chances. The attitude yeah. is simply can't risk anything. Yes, of zero risk. We are yeah. going to make it zero risk. We, we don't care if we, I mean, assuming what you say is right, killing the wrong people. Say we can't take any risks. And I've heard that from people, from Israeli, yeah. pretty high up. We can't take any risks. And, so and I, I keep, I used to joke with them, but here in India, that takes all the risks, unbidden. Right? <laughs> <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum. You know, so it, but India, India is not going anywhere. I think India is... No, no one is an existential threat to India. I think India will, you know, if, if India can just develop its own internal economy, it will thrive. I think that's yeah. basically the, you know. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But then, you know, so many things, uh, our democracy also works against us, as you know, uh, because uh, it's one thing, I mean, you guys are having problems in a so-called developed democracy of yours, you know, yeah. after the Trump uh, uh, thing yeah. and so on. And you have a real problem in America. So think of India where, you know, it's such a patchwork country of different ethnicities, uh, racial types. I mean, we are the ultimate Mongol nation. Yeah. 
It's very unlike the Chinese, uh, you know, and, and we are the ultimate melting point. Don, Daniel Moynihan's notion of America, I laugh at it. I laugh at it when, uh, when Americans say, talk about America as a melting pot. My God, India is the ultimate melting pot, you know, and Brazil perhaps comes next, you know, yes. but China is absolutely homogenous. Yeah. So they have a great many, uh, shall we say, um, advantages when dealing with India. They have a long because history of an organized central census, uh, you know, decisions in India on anything. Yes. On, and on any issue, there'll be 10 different, literally 10 different positions. And, so and I, Modi, in that sense, has uh, perhaps uh, has streamlined the decision-making process and uh, been a bit more aggressive, aggressively nationalist. But, you know... If he loses in next year's election, he's out. So we'll go back to Congress party and all their iffy kind of politicking and so on. So we don't know what will happen. So we have so the same I, kind of uncertainties that the United States has from administration yeah. to administration. Yeah. The Chinese you know, have one, none of them. You know, one thing that people have kind of forgotten in the West, but uh, people from East Asia remember this, that every one of the tigers that developed to modernity had an authoritarian period. Like That's South right. Korea, Taiwan, they had author Singapore, they had authoritarian government to get things on the right track. And then only later, very recently, did they implement democracy. So I think that's in the minds of the Chinese communists as well. No, absolutely. So. But that also is, as you know, Steve, uh, you know, most of Southeast Asia, it's called Indochina, of course, uh, but the cynic elements in this are more pronounced in terms of the Confucian order notion yes. of the confusion or the hierarchy and so on. Uh, yes. There's more, uh, you know, when democracy doesn't sit that easily, uh, you know, because it's not natural to the culture. There's yeah. a confusion order, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, it's a very different, very disciplined kind of setup. Well, yeah. in India, we are a hybrid of everything. We, are, we do not have the Western innovation. We do not have the confusion discipline. We are just, you know, we... We are everywhere uh, doing everything and going nowhere fast. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of a conundrum, that kind of a bubble we are in. You know, I mean, we don't know how to get out of it, but that will take time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but the Chinese are, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, far more on the ball. Uh, they know their game and they play it well. They play it hard. It's something that the Indian government has to learn to do. Play game hard, you know, and play it for high stakes because uh, the Chinese, in that sense, are very singularly oriented. Yes, and they they know what they're doing and what they want. Uh, here, we don't even know what they we want. There is no strategy paper. There is no vision paper. Xi Jinping says we want to be by 2049. We want to be the dominant, predominant power. He said so. Whether China becomes one is a different thing. But here, the vision. That he has set before all the parties within his country, all the all the constituencies, PLA, industry, yep. private sector, everyone is on board. They know, okay, we have to reach this. Here we have nothing. And I keep saying, where is the vision paper? Where is Modi saying, okay, we buy 20? And we have very abstract notions, which were good, which what I've, uh, you know, uh, I've really criticized in my last book, Staggering Forward. You know, what does Vishwa Guru mean? Vishwa Guru means, uh, a universal sage. I mean, 
okay, that's nice. But <laughs> how does it work? I mean, is it by acclamation? I mean, how do you, how are you made the Vishwaguru? So this is our problem, you know. Even the most hard-minded amongst us are politicians. I still come up with these abstract notions as vision. Not at all strategic. They're completely abstract. So, you know, in that sense, because the Chinese have very practical-minded people, it's what I always appreciate. Chinese have, you know, India invented zero, algebra. But the Chinese built canals. They built, uh, you know, the great, you know, mastered the riverine system, you know, Great Wall of China. They have actually done things over thousands of years. And we have just gone into, okay, brilliant. We are brilliant. You know, zero was invented here, fine. Algebra was invented here, fine. But what did you do with it in practical terms? Really? Which is where I think our Indian culture is lacking. Uh, we are not. Can I? Can I so, I've kept, so I've kept you a long time. And I, I could I close with there are two questions about Indian culture that I kind of wanted to ask you about. So sure. could we just close with that? Would that be okay? Sure. Okay. So one is, yeah, you've, I've heard you mention this uh, term land of subjugation uh, before, um, which I guess originated from this Polish sociologist uh, who spent time in India. Could you flesh that out a little bit? So wh in what sense do you mean that? Do you mean that because there are castes and uh, the people in those have maintained those roles for thousands of years, it, it, that, is that the form of subjugation or what, what, what is meant by that? No, I think he meant foreign subjugation. Yes. Uh, that almost any, any, you know, all, all in any waves of invaders that have come in from the, uh, the passes, the Himalayan passes or the Hindu Kush passes from Afghanistan and so on, periodic raids, they then set up shop as emperors and rulers of India. As easy as that. Uh, the campaign season would start and the Afghan looters would come in, uh, through the Bolan Pass and the Khyber Pass, come into Delhi to loot Delhi. Whereas the Indo Vajitic plain was rich. It was fertile. Uh, there's enormous wealth produced at the time. Addison, uh, you know, the Addison's data about India and China in 1787 or whatever it was. Uh, 20, China had 25% of the world trade. India had 24% of the world trade. In uh, whenever, you know, 17, uh, late 18th, uh, 17th, 18th century? Yeah. Or 17th century, whatever it was. Uh, so, you know, Addison Mattingly's uh, data, you know, his book. Angus, so, Angus Madison, I think you mean. Yeah, yeah, it is a mat yeah. It's, yeah. Angus but, Madison. Uh, is, so is, yeah, is this phrase, I'm, is this phrase land of subjugation, is it equivalent to the observations by colonial British that the Indians are not a martial people? Like, I think they said things like that when they first came, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, they, yes. they stopped martial. You see, our, uh, the, the caste system is very deleterious in that respect because uh, what it talks about are these four castes. And soldiering is to be done by one caste. So protection of the sovereign state or kingdom, whatever, was uh, the duty or responsibility of one caste, the second caste, the warrior caste, the kshatriya caste. Well, you know, you can have only so many people in that caste. So all the rest of the uh, society was spared any responsibility of protecting it if invaders came. Hey, that warrior caste is supposed to do it. <laughs> if yeah. they fail or fail, uh, that's our karma or fate. You know, I mean, we, uh, very fatalistic. It, it bred a very fatalistic uh, fatalism in Indian society. It's a very fatalistic society. Yes. Uh, and that's in our culture. 
So I dread that. And then this was added to by Hinduism and Buddhism, where you say, well, life is uh, a maya, which is illusion. Life is illusion. You know, I mean, all of this sort of meshes into making Indians and India a very a passive culture. You know, it's not that you can't fight, but the culture says, you know, well, you're not supposed to. Some caste is going to do the fighting for you. Or if you're being beaten, it's okay. You know, that's your, uh, that's your fate. Uh, accept it. This is what Gandhi's, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's, uh, you know, I completely think he's a complete idiot and a fraud. And I've said so in all my books. He's the worst kind of fraud who perpetrated, who did great violence to India. Because he could have, you know, quite literally, he could have uh, driven the British out uh, by the 1920s. And he mm -hmm. did. He acted like a recruiting sergeant for the British Army in the First World War, Boer War, and then the Second World, First World War. And then in the Second World War, you know, he just said, well, yeah, you know, it is wishy-washy. I mean, he was a complete goof-off, you know. I mean, the more you think of him. So I, I'm no, I, I'm no, uh, you spoken, know, fan of Gandhi's. But spoken the, like I, a real hard-power realist. <laughs> I'm an absolute hard-power realist. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I think all the non-violence is crap. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. It doesn't work in real life. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is, you have to protect what you have. You know, you can't live on the mercies of other countries. Or as, uh, you know, was the Tennessee Williams character in Streetcar Named Desire, uh, Dubois, the lady says, Blanche Dubois, you know, who says, I live on the kindnesses of strangers. Yes. You know, and yes. that's what I've said. We have lived on kindnesses of strangers. Uh, yeah. They the, can do it. Let's do it. The Chinese are obsessed with hard power because they saw their summer palace burned and all of their right. objects are taken to London, you know, and other places. So they, they learned the hard way about hard power, right? So um, Absolutely. No, but also to be fair to the Chinese, uh, the Chinese history has been very, very bloody. I mean, uh, the Taiping Rebellion, I mean, the kind of massacres, and I mean, it's hideous to think of it. Yeah, they don't fool around. Uh, they don't fool around. My God, you know, I mean, uh, to me, when I read of it, I, I'm absolutely, uh, you know, I'm awed by how they have overcome that and become a great nation. So yeah. I, I, I admire the Chinese and, the Ch and I admire China because of how single-mindedly it proceeds to get what it wants. And it's so very let me, practical. Let, about it. let me finish with my last question. So. From the Chinese perspective, uh, they envy Indians because Indian elites speak beautiful English, actually, and therefore you can operate much better in the Western world. M many elite intellectuals from China, including my father, who was an engineering professor, never really spoke very good English. Like uh, he would, uh, he would not be able to convince other people of his point of view because of his limited linguistic capabilities. And it's quite hard because the the two languages are so far apart, you know. Um, so. One thing that surprised me, which I didn't realize until fairly late, that it seems to me that all the intellectual discourse in India is actually happening in English. Is that true? Like, do, do you feel like, no, in a way, the British have still colonized, in a sense, all the, the kind of high culture in India, and it, it persists to this day? Will, will that persist forever? Or what, what do you think will happen? Could you maybe just react to yes. that observation? Yeah. Yes, I, I think it's a great observation. <clears throat> the fact is, I think uh, Modi is trying to uh, change that. 
that's why uh, there's a little controversy of Modi uh, saying, uh, you know, having that legend uh, on his table in the plenary of the G20 meet that says Bharat, uh, which my name, by the way, for India, you know, it's yeah. a Sanskrit name for the country, uh, Bharat. Uh, so it's, uh, and in the constitution, it says India, that is Bharat, you know, we the people of India, that is Bharat. So in the constitution, both the names are there, the indigenous Bharat. The, when it becomes personal, it becomes Bharat. When for the country, it's Bharat. So that, that's how it is. Uh, that's how you distinguish the, the per personal from the collective. Uh, but that's it. You know, it's hard to get it. Look. English language has been a great boon for all the reasons that you just mentioned. We can slip into any mainstream anywhere, any Western mainstream anywhere, and begin to, you know, I, I, I recall what uh, um, Krishna Menon, our first defense minister, uh, not first, Nehru's confidant, and he's the one who sort of uh, championed Indian independence, uh, India League in London and so on in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s. Uh, and, you know, one, I think, it will be BBC or somebody um, uh, deign to ask him. But Mr. Menon, you speak such good English. I know. I think uh, it, it was uh, uh, after it was an American, obviously. <laughs> no, some such thing. <laughs> I think it was an American at the yes. United Nations, where you know uh, he spoke for the longest time in UN history. He spoke for 13 hours or something. It's like literally ridiculous record. You can check it up. I'm not sure of the figure, so don't hold me to it. But he, sp he spoke so beautifully in English and bring in poetry and, you know, big literature, this, that, you know, English liberal thought, Thomas Locke, uh, and everything else which had no connection. I mean, the entire United Nations was sitting there getting a lesson in world history from Krishna Menon. Anyway, so an American, I think, approached him and said, Mr. Menon, you speak such beautiful English. Um, and then, you know, Mr. Menon is reported to have pulled himself to full height. And he was a tall man. He said, yes, because you learn English. We study it. <laughs> you know, learn, by the way, mother tongue, you know, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. In, no, I, 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 I get it. I think he's 100% right. But... Uh... It was for an outsider. It's amazing that, you know, if I go on YouTube and I want to hear what are intellectuals discussing in Delhi, I can go listen to a panel discussion with you on it. And you're all discussing in English. It's it's kind yeah. of amazing, actually. Yeah, because in many respects, uh, we are not all that fluent in the uh, Hindi language. And Hindi is just one language, by the way. In peninsular India, there are, you know, how many languages and dialects Some three 300 main, there's supposed to be 1,000 dialects, but 300 main languages, 28 recognized langu languages, something like that. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, extraordinary um, uh, melange, really. Uh, the, the lingual melange is so incredible, and it's cross-fertilization, you know. I mean, you have English words coming in, Urdu words coming in, Persian words. It's a mix of everything. And so, you know, South Indian may not understand a North Indian. A person from Assam may not understand a Gujarati, which is the Prime Minister's home state. No, this, this is India. So the common language, however bad it is by way of uh, colonial legacy, and it's true, it can be hindering, it's not your native tongue, uh, but the fact is it has given us a little edge in terms of international uh, 
transnational industry, commerce, uh, academics. There are a lot of Indians now in the academia in America, in UK, and elsewhere at, in the top positions. Um, and, 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 it, and, and the Chinese are in that sense perhaps not anymore. Uh, I think they've come up. Uh, are slightly disadvantaged because of the language uh, thing, but otherwise they're excellent and perhaps better. But the thing is that English is also, it's a boon in that respect. But the bane in that, because it's a borrowed language, it's a colonial language, and that's the lingua franca, by the way, officially. That's in Hindi, but English is a co-language, which the South Indians want to retain. They say, no, we don't want uh, uh, Hindi to be imposed on us, and we'll keep it uh, English. Uh, because otherwise we'll demand Tamil to be the state language, and so on and so forth. It's separatist notions, you know. Nobody yeah. wants to deal with the language aspects. But it is a problem, because I think the Chinese, from the very beginning, understood and admired their own culture, and were schooled in it, and are rooted in it, while we are not, in our own indigenous culture. Uh, their culture, of course, is the Indian culture, the Hindu culture, Envelopes all over the subcontinent, including Pakistan. You know, Islam in Pakistan is nothing like the uh, desert Islam of Saudi Arabia. I mean, all the rituals are Hindu rituals. All the marriage rituals are Hindu rituals. That is what's different. I've attended uh, marriages, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, from the Goa side. Uh, you know, um, I'd say Western Indian, <laughs> West Indian uh, from the Goa side. And my wife is a Punjabi from the north. Uh, and her mother was from where is present-day Pakistan, from Dera Ghazi Khan. Uh, you know, and uh, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law was from Dera Ghazi Khan. My father-in-law was from East Punjab, meaning Indian side of Punjab. Uh, and it's such a mix. And and you go to Pakistan and you attend the weddings. It's very like the Punjabi wedding, which was mine. Like my my wife was Punjabi, so you know, they had a we had a Punjabi wedding. No different, except you have the uh, Quran in the thing, and uh, you say, "Well, in the Hindu thing, you go round the fire seven times." There's only diff only difference. Otherwise, everything else, the three-day wedding ceremony, is exactly the same. Paste, yes. turmeric, turmeric paste, put on bride, bridegrooms and brides, etc. Everything is the same. So you know, that's Hindu culture. It's extraordinarily penetrative. So Islam has touched it very barely. Sure, Pakistanis swear by Islam and so on and so forth. But the point is, everything else is for its subcontinental. It's, it's, I won't say Hindu, but it's Indian culture. You know, that's a better umbrella to describe the subcontinental culture, South Asian culture. Great. Bharat, I thank you for your time and uh, hopefully we can continue this conversation on another day. Thank you very much. <laughs>